Welcome to Philosophy, the intersection of meaning and money. We live in a world of an abundance of stuff, but a scarcity of meaning and purpose. On Philosophy, we explore how a philosophy of life can help us pursue meaningful endeavors and prepare for the future while enjoying today. Money is entangled in almost every aspect of modern life, so any serious inquiry for self-knowledge and personal development requires an exploration of the meaning of money. We'll learn from business leaders, entrepreneurs, philosophers, investors, historians, and others to help us think better, work better, invest better, build better, and live better. This show is brought to you by Vermillion Private Wealth. Thanks for being a part of this quest. Hello, and welcome to a very special edition of Philosophy. I'm James Vermillion, and today's episode is a little bit different. I'm excited to share parts of a conversation I had with Arnold Vandenberg. Arnold is a special investor and a special person. He was born in Amsterdam in 1939, several blocks away from the historic Anne Frank house. Arnold's family, also Jewish, had to hide from Nazi occupiers. Fearful of being discovered and executed, Arnold's parents arranged to smuggle him to an orphanage as a toddler. His childhood and young adulthood were filled with difficult circumstances. Still, Arnold overcame the anger, resentment, and self-doubt to become one of the most successful investors of our time. Arnold's story and his passion for truth and the subconscious mind are inspiring. Each time I talk to him, I'm reminded that sharing meaningful ideas matters. So I'm honored to share his ideas with you. Enjoy. We have an incredible tool that can transform lives and change whole destinies. And there isn't that much conversation and information about it, which puzzles me because, you know, I never went to college. But if I was going to college and if I was a teacher, it's the first thing I teach somebody. We have this mainframe supercomputer and we don't have clear instructions on how to use it. And yet we use it every day, but sometimes by not knowing how to use it, you can actually hurt yourself as opposed to help yourself. And so that's been a passion of mine for the last 45 to 50 years. And I've actually thought, and the more I talk to people, the more I'm thinking about doing it, it's creating a little... I don't know, either a summary or a little video or something to help people who are in the investment field like I am and you are and uh, help them become, help them to use their subconscious mind to become a better investor. The main thing is your, the way you feel about yourself and what you deserve and what you believe you should get. And, you know, There are two main things that keep people from being successful, whether it's the money management field, athletics, you name it, is there's two things that are really critical. Number one, truthfulness is absolutely essential, more than most people would ever believe. And getting rid of anger. And those two things will have ruined many lives. And it has nothing to do with how smart or brilliant or anything you are. 
It has to do with the way you believe about yourself. And those are, by the way, James, the hardest things I had to overcome. Because of uh, going through the war and the persecution, all that, I have very low opinion of myself because if you grow up in an environment where people don't like Jews and they're out to get you, you're always like a, a hunted animal. You know what I mean? Sure. It's hard to build a good self-image in that environment. And then you become angry because of all of the things that happen to you. The anger creates self-destructive behavior. When you have angry thoughts, uh, you feel guilty. And then after you feel guilty, it gets into your subconscious mind and the subconscious mind says, well, I got to punish myself to get clear. So you create all this self-destructive behavior and you could be one of the most brilliant investors. But if the subconscious mind is out to punish you, it's going to punish you because it's more powerful than your will and it overcomes it. And that's where people keep shooting themselves in the foot. When I was growing up, the way World War II and the Holocaust was taught to us, it might as well have been a thousand years ago. There was very little frame of reference. And especially, as you can imagine, a child 50, 60 years ago sounds like forever ago. But that's something I would like to talk about as well. Is that was not long ago. And I, I think it's very easy for people to, to forget how recent some of those travesties were. Um, and how now granted a lot's changed since then, but I, I just want to talk a little bit about that and how you kind of cope with, with that, because I know I would probably harbor some intense anger, um, having lived through that like you did. So those are just kind of a couple topics that I think would be really fascinating for, for you to talk about. And I would love to hear about them. I'm 82 years old and I feel that I have benefited. I, I don't mind telling you that with all the things I went through, the older I get, the more grateful I am to have gone through that. Not that I would ever want to repeat it, but the insights and the things that I learned from them, which seems so commonsensical to me, many people just haven't thought about it because they never experienced it. You know, you, you can't, it's kind of like if you read about an experience in a book, it's one thing but you can't get the same feeling as if you've actually gone through it. You know what I mean? It's kind of like I tell people, look, you can read a book. If you don't know how to drive a car, you can read a motor manual. You go to driver's education. But until you get behind the wheel and, and start moving and getting the feel of the vehicle, you really don't. You couldn't get that experience unless you've lived it. I feel privileged. While I would have never chosen it, it's like kind of, uh, you know, people who become SEALs. You can read about the SEALs and you can hear all their tales, but until you actually become a SEAL, I don't think you could ever appreciate what these guys are going through and what they're capable of handling. The amazing thing is the human mind and the body is capable of things that we are not aware of because we never had to go through them. And so I love sharing those things because I believe, James, that a can, person can change their life in the twinkling of an eye. The minute you have a thought that you want to do this or that or you want to create this or whatever it is you may want to 
do or whatever your dream is. The minute you make an actual commitment to that, your life is already on focus to change. This is something that can really help people. And so whenever I have the opportunity, I try to do it because what could be greater than with one idea, you can change somebody's life. I mean, what could you have or what could you do that is better than that? You know what I mean? If the subconscious mind is so powerful, why is it not more widely used and discussed? That is a great question, and I don't have the answer for that. Uh, I cannot believe that it isn't discussed. I, I would think that if you're a psychologist or a psychology major, that you would be standing on the street corner passing out tracks, you know, like somebody <laughs> who's religious. Sure. That's the way I am. And, you know, I just don't think... People have given it enough thoughts, even though everybody uses it. Like you take any successful athlete, I don't care who they are. And I can tell you that the reason they're successful is because through accident or desire, they have learned to use the subconscious mind without even realizing that they're using it. I developed a program to help athletes because I was an athlete at one time. And I had a breakthrough in my thinking that literally transformed me from a weak, skinny kid into a star athlete and a record holder. Two years before that, I was so discouraged, I was ready to give it up. And if I would have given it up, I would have never known what I was able to achieve. And, and not only that, having achieved that, which was so difficult, and overcoming so many obstacles that it gave me the confidence to start my investment practice, even though I didn't have any clients, didn't have any money, and I didn't have an education. It was just a dream. <laughs> and the subconscious created all this. What, what changed, I mean, Arnold? What, why didn't you give it up? Why did I not give it up? Yeah, what, what told you to keep going even well, though you almost uh, that's quit? A good, that, uh, James, that's a very good question. And I had to think about that myself. But what I finally came to, I felt so bad about being weak and skinny. You know, when you're in a tough neighborhood and you're starting to date girls and you're weak and skinny and you have a terrible self-image, life is just misery. Mm -hmm. So I knew that I had to overcome this physical handicap that I had. And that was my dream. That was my dream. Uh, whatever I had to do to overcome that, that was my dream. So I started with a rope climb. My brother was a rope climber. Unlike myself, he grew up in a war on a farm. He ate like a hog and he worked his butt off and he was as strong as any kid his age. Matter of fact, the coach used him as an example uh, because he had seven or I think six gym periods where he took every kid in his gym period, made him climb the rope, and then the kids who were the fastest, he talked into joining the team. Mm -hmm. And my brother was the fastest out of all of his classes, just out of pure strength. So my brother became a rope climber, which came pretty easy with him. And, you know, my brother and I got to talk, and he said, Arnold, if you want to overcome your 
the physical part, you should become a rope climber. I said, well, you know, I'm so weak and skinny. How in the hell am I going to? He said, well, you work at it. So he introduced me to the coach. And the coach was a really cool guy who wanted to help me. And he encouraged me to start climbing. And I climbed for two years without hardly any progress. But I started to get stronger. And I started to make some progress. And one day, the young, all a bunch of young guys were in the seventh grade sitting around saying, what are you going to do? Well, I'm going to go out for football. I'm going out for basketball. I'm going out for tennis. And one guy asked me, Vandenberg, what are you going out for? And I said, well, I'm thinking about going out for the rope climb. Well, there was a kid who was a bodybuilder. His brother was a gymnast. And uh, he, he was very strong. And he said, I'm going, going to go out for the rope climb. And he looked at me <laughs> with this disparaging look, and he says, how in the hell are you going to make it into rope climb? <laughs> you know, which was a logical question. And I got embarrassed. My ego got on the line. I figured that, you know, he had never climbed before, even though he was strong. I figured I could beat him because I was starting to make some progress. So I said, well, I'll tell you what, if you'd like to have a race this afternoon after school, I'd be happy to race you. And he looked at me and he goes, oh, okay, great. So we met at the gym. I, all my friends were there and everybody. It was a big thing. We got there and he beat me so bad I wanted to cry right there on the spot. <laughs> and I went home and I thought, Jesus, I've been working out for two years. This guy's never even climbed a rope. And he beat me so bad it was not a contest. How am I ever going to make it? And then a thought came to my mind. It just popped in from the subconscious. And it said, why would you quit? You're, you wanted to get stronger and you're getting stronger. Mm. And I thought for a moment and I thought, you know, that's right. Even if I can't compete, at least I'm getting stronger. That was evident. So I said, I'm going to keep going. Do you know the next year I broke the school record? took first in the league, set the league record, and I was on my way. Now, just think if I would have quit. As small as it might seem, you know, quitting the rope climbing team and giving up on, you know, something that was, you know, a hobby as a, as a kid, it, it could have changed your life. In fact, it would have changed your life, as you, as you said. So uh, to me, that kind of thinking is, is really so important and so interesting just to think well, about how little trivial things aren't so trivial if you really think about it. Absolutely. I'll give you even a better example. Being raised Jewish and my parents going through the concentration camp made an indelible impression of how important my Jewishness was. So as I was going through high school, I met a girl who was Catholic and she was my high school sweetheart. We we're thinking about getting married, which created all kinds of problems. So we kept debating this religion thing. And finally, I said to myself, you know, I really should know what I believe about God. I mean, you know, I was in my getting into the 19, 20 year mm -hmm. age group. And I thought I should really find out. And so I started asking her about Catholicism. And my God, coming from a Jewish home, 
and listening over these stories about Christ, I thought, this is just ridiculous, you know? <laughs> yeah. And uh, my dad was a very intelligent guy and forward-thinking, so I started talking to him about it. So I started reading the Bible and studying. There was a guy at uh, my work who was a very knowledgeable Christian who was a believer in Jesus, and he was studying to be a minister. And uh, we had many great discussions about God. He tried, you know, was trying to convince me that Jesus was the Messiah. Mm -hmm. And he was a good guy and honest and hardworking, just a terrific guy. So I started studying it, started asking my dad. And my dad says, you know, Arnold, I can't answer all of these questions that the theological type. Why don't we go talk to the rabbi? I'm sure he can answer your question. I said, oh, great. So we set up an appointment with the rabbi. And at that time, I had studied a lot about the Messiah and the prophecies and the Old and New Testament. And I don't know, I forgot now how I met this guy, but it shows you how the subconscious leads you to people. So for some strange reason, I met this Bible scholar, and his whole mission in life was to convert Jews to Christ because he thought Christ was the Messiah. And he was a world-renowned scholar. He was a scholar in Aramaic, in Hebrew, in Greek. I mean, this guy was just one of the top people. Matter of fact, he was so well-known that Truman called him in at the time when Israel was being created. He called him in to advise him on what he should do because there was a big debate in America whether they should recognize Israel as an independent nation. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because it was under British rule. And so Truman was a little perplexed about it. He kind of favored making the Jews uh, their own homeland, but he had a lot of pressure on the other side. So Dr. Cooper told me that he walked into Truman's office. They sat down and Truman says, what do you think about it? He said, you know what, Mr. President, the Bible says that the Jews are God's people and that he's going to give them their homeland. You can read it in Ezekiel 37 and 38 it shows that the Jews are going to come back and create their own nation. And if I were you, I would not get in God's way. And he's Truman says, that's exactly what I've been thinking. Thank you for your advice. And he did it. Mm -hmm. This is the level of influence this guy had. Right. So then he showed me that he developed a set of books called The God of Israel, in which he debated the, the thing about Jesus uh, from a geological stand, archaeological, from a biblical standpoint, on and on and on. Each book had a different way of looking at through the same lens. So he showed me letters that he got from rabbis, and they all appreciated his scholarly work, but they all ended the letter with, we respectfully disagree with your conclusions. <laughs> <laughs> but they had a lot of they had. They didn't just dismiss it. Sure. They gave credit uh, for the uh, the scholarly work. Right. So anyway, we got to talking about one of the problems. He says, "Let me give you an example of how you, as a lay person, can do this." So he said, "Let's take a look at the Jewish Bible 
And let's look at Isaiah 14. And it says, Behold, behold, a young woman shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means with God. He said, now look at the way the Christians interpret that same par- same passage. Behold a, uh, behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call the name Emmanuel. He said, what is the correct translation? If you were to ask your rabbi, he'd say it's young woman. Mm-hmm. If you were to ask a Christian scholar like me, I would say the correct word is virgin. Now, that makes a big difference whether a young woman bears a son or whether a virgin bears a son. <laughs> yes, right? it does. Very big difference. Yeah. So he said, so how do you know what's the right interpretation? I said, well, that's what I'd like to know. He said, okay, the Hebrew word is Alma. Let's look at a concordance, which tells you every time the word is used, and let's see in the context that it's used. Alma is, I think, don't quote me on the number, but it's 157 or 175 times in the Bible the word word is used, Alma. And it's always translated virgin. Young woman can be a virgin, but most of the time it's just a young woman. And the word is Bethula. He said, now, can you show me any place you take? Here's the concordance. You take it home. Show me any place where the word Bethula is translated to mean specifically virgin. And the truth of the matter is there isn't. Mm -hmm. So he said, it's a clear no-brainer, and the Jewish people interpret it because they can't accept the fact that that is, an impl- that is a prophecy of Jesus, because that would destroy their whole concept, right? Right. And they've been fighting over this for 2,000 years. He said, so you can see the tough job I've got. I said, oh, I already know the tough job you've got. <laughs> I mean, just talking to my parents. (laughs) Sure. So he gave me a lot of these kind of ideas. So I thought, okay, well, you know what? I'm going to ask the rabbi about this. Be interesting what he has to say, which was a shocker. So I go in there with my dad and I said, Rabbi, I've been talking to this biblical scholar. And he said that the Jewish Old Testament version, that some of the translations are in question. So he looked at me incredulous. He says, are you going to tell me that 2,000 years of Jewish scholars are wrong? And I said, well, that's the question. He says, how can you even question that? I said, well, either the 2,000 Jewish scholars, for 2,000 years, the Jewish scholars are wrong, or the Christian scholars are wrong. <laughs> you know, that's, that's just as hard to believe, right? Right. So he says, okay, show me what you're talking about. So I showed him all my two. And he throws his hands up. He says, are you going to tie a whole religious concept to this one passage? And I said, well, Robbie, there's other passages like that. This is not the only one. And, you know, there's many prophecies about Jesus. He said, look, the Bible is basically... Bubba You know what a Bubba is? I do not. No, sir. Okay. Well, Bubba Misa, Bubba means grandmother and Misa means tales. So it's basically fairy tales. Okay. So he said, 
The Old Testaments are just man's visions at the time. And, you know, when you tell a story and you tell it to 10 different people, by the time you get through it, you have a completely different story, right? You've heard that. Yeah, the old old telephone game. Yeah, the telephone game. He says, that's what the Bible is. It's Bubamice. (laughs) So my dad's sitting there very quiet all this time. He says, Rabbi, are you telling me to be Jewish that our religion is Bubamice? I went through concentration camp for this. <laughs> my, my dad got a little indignant. He was kind of upset about that. So the rabbi says, you go, just settle down. Let me give you an example. We're going back thousands of years where the Jews are prisoners of uh, the Egyptians to turn them into slave. They persecute them. Finally, Moses comes along, leads them out of Egypt. And they get to the Red Sea, and the Egyptians are after him. They're trapped between the Red Sea and the Egyptians. And Moses raises his hands, and he raises his hands. The ocean opens up. The Jewish people go through it. And then he lowers his hand, and all the Egyptians drown. He said, now, do you think God really did that? That he drowned his his Egyptian? They're children of God, too, right? Uh, How could he do that? My dad says, well, I don't know whether that happened or not, but I think if God wanted to do that, he certainly is capable. He says, you go. I'm not asking you whether God is capable of it. I'm asking you whether you believe that actually happened. So my dad sat back and he said, well, I don't really know. He says, okay, that's okay. That's acceptable. I don't really know either but I treat it as a story. Maybe it's true, maybe it isn't, but I'm not going to bank my life on it, and neither should you. So my dad got very quiet and kind of ended after not too long further. So I'm driving home with my dad, and I said, Pa, what did you think about Rabbi Miller? (laughs) He said, I don't think he should be a rabbi. So, I, so, you know, that's the kind of thing I went through. So anyway, this long story short. So now I'm sitting there one night after agonizing for months and saying, God, what if Jesus is really the Messiah and we have ignored him all these years? And what if he is the Messiah? I have to become a Christian. What am I going to do? My parents are going to think I'm a traitor. You know, it's like you saying uh, to your parents that, you've decided to be a communist. <laughs> yeah, they wouldn't like that. So I was agonizing over it. I went into depression over it. And I'm sitting there studying the Bible one night, and I had the same experience from the subconscious that I did with the rope climbing. And it said, if you want to follow the truth, you have to go wherever it leads you. And I thought about that for a moment. And I said, you know, that's right. It's not a matter of whose religion is the best, is what is right, what is the truth. That's the most important thing. And the minute I had that thought that says, that's right, I completely had a change. I could feel it in my body. I just felt so relieved. 
And I felt so good because I didn't have to make a choice on the religion. I just had to make a choice whether I wanted to know the truth. Mm -hmm. And if the truth was more important than anything else, then you have to do it. It's just that simple. It's kind of like looking at a stock. It's down. You know, you're getting a lot of bad news. And the question is, is it still worth what you think it is? Or has the value diminished so much that you got to sell the stock? You got to be honest. Right. It's pain painful. You have to take the loss. But that's what it takes, the truth. If you seek the truth, the truth shall set you free. And it does. It set me completely free. So what's my religion today? I don't belong to any particular religion. I have studied every one of them, most of them, I should say. Hinduism, Buddhism, Judaism, Christianity. I studied the New Testament for three years. And I was very impressed and influenced with the teachings of Jesus. But I don't necessarily belong to a Christian church because I don't necessarily agree with everything in the church either, as I do what's taught in the synagogue. And I wouldn't, even though I'm very comfortable with what Buddhists taught, Buddha taught, I'm a big admirer of him, I wouldn't join a Buddhist temple because by the time men get around to fixing everything, they screw up the real truth. You know what I mean? Yes. And But that became my guiding principle. What is the truth? And so by seeking the truth, you see a different lens. And I have a slide that I give in a presentation. It's a Dostoevsky was a Russian writer. And he got imprisoned like in a concentration camp, the Gulag into Russia, because he was a political activist. And he noticed something that in the prisoners who were able to take the abuse and the environment, the ones that did the best, the ones that had the greatest character. So he came to the conclusion that the secret to enduring anything is to have great character. And the people of great character were able to adjust the best. So when he got out of prison, he wrote books, uh, stories, and he would use the character in the book to explain how your life ends up if you have a certain character. And he obviously dealt with truth. So long story short, when I was in high school, I was going the wrong way. My dad recognized it, and he kept asking me to read the Brother Dostoevsky by uh, the Brother Karamazov. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I looked at it. It's about three inches thick. And in high school, I wasn't into, into reading books that thick. I barely did the homework that was required. So I never read it. But one day I came to a passage where one of my favorite authors, James Allen's talk, a man can reach the pinnacle of success and fall lower than beast by encouraging the wrong thought. Mm. So I thought about that and I said, how could a guy who knows what it takes to be successful encourage thoughts that would cause him to be unsuccessful? Didn't make any sense. That bothered me. I tried to figure that out for about three years and I couldn't figure it out. So one day my wife and I are in the bookstore 
But anyway, she's looking for kids' book, and I see this big shelf, big bookcase, and it has all blue books. They're all the same. They're all different books, but they're all blue. And I thought, why would a company make all these books, different books, and have the same cover? It didn't make any sense to me. So I walked over there and I looked at it. It was a competitor of Cliff Notes. Uh And they had all the classics and different authors. And all of a sudden, I saw the brother Karamazov. And I thought, geez, it's only about 10 or 12 pages. You know, it's a Cliff Note. And I thought, you know, Paul always wanted me to read this. I think I'll read it. So I bought, bought the thing. I opened it up. And on the third opening, third page I turned to, it says, above all, do not lie. When you lie, you lose the ability to discern the truth in yourself and other people. Having lied, you lose respect for yourself and other people. And by losing respect for yourself, you lose the ability to love. Mm -hmm. And when you lose the ability to love, you develop a really empty feeling which can only be satisfied by engaging in all the coarse pleasures of life, such as gambling, sex, drinking, dope, drugs, etc. Mm-hmm. And he says, by engaging in those activities, you fall to a level lower than beast. And it all started with a lie. Mm. How's that? That's, yeah, that's good. That's really good. Now, you know, I want to know the other secret. What I discovered at the greatest force in the world and the most important to human needs is love. And so what you do by becoming a liar and a cheat, you lose that ability to love, which is the greatest need that any human being could want. There's a guy named Ashley Montague who who studied human happiness for 50 years. And they asked him, how come you spent 50 years studying you in happiness? He was a Britisher. And he said, because I was so profoundly unhappy. Yeah. So he studied anthropology, sociology, psychology, you name it. He wrote 60 books. And he says, the simplest and greatest need of all human beings, irrespective, is the ability to receive and give love. And he said, if you're missing that, you're never going to be successful, even though you could make money and everybody thinks you're great and all that kind of stuff. Right. So I made a chart out of that. And I teach it whenever I I give talks at the local community to kids who are studying the Holocaust. They study in Frank and then they have me come in as an actual person who lived on the same street as Anne Frank. And I give a talk called Lessons of the Holocaust. And I take all the lessons like that that I've learned on this journey and I share it with the students. So they not only get to hear the story, but they get to learn some very valuable lessons. And I have gotten letters from these kids that you would not believe. You, I, I would not believe that these kids are as deep as they are at age 12 and 13. I certainly wasn't. But the kids today have gotten a good education. But a lot can be done, and it's a matter of focusing and believing. And do you know that belief is the single most important thing to achievement? 
You don't do it until you subconsciously believe it. And that's the problem with most people. They can't get themselves to believe they can do something great. But, so if they don't believe it, it can't happen. Can I propose an, uh, an observation that I've had to you sure. and see if you agree with me or not? We have made incredible progress as far as science, technology, medical innovation, all of these things. And human nature wants us to feel certain. We fear the unknown. I think because of that, we underestimate the subconscious because we can't explain it. And despite so much that we've learned about the brain, about the mind, about the human body, about you know pharmaceutical impacts and nutritional impacts on, on the human body, we know only a sliver of what is available and what it what is as you say what is true what is you know what is true about the human body and about human nature i think that the fact that we we are so desperate to want to know keeps people from exploring things that we can't understand like the subconscious it's why i didn't meditate for for a long time because it just seemed silly it seemed like nonsense. No one could tell me exactly why it would work, you know, from a scientific, um, you know, point of view. So does that make sense? You hit the nail on the head, James. That's exactly it. We've become so intelligent and so scientific that we can sit there and say, this is not possible. This can't happen. Right. And if you believe that it can't look at the bright brothers when they took the plane. Nobody thought, and it was logical, that, uh, that, you know, something this heavy could lift up and fly. Right. But Absolutely. The Brothers be- but they believed that it could be. And because they believed it, they made it happen. And that's true of any invention. You name it. Most of the time, it didn't happen because people didn't believe it could happen. What we do not understand, we don't believe in, which is logical if you're intelligent. You you know, if somebody told me they could fly, I wouldn't believe it until I saw it, you know, even though I hear about these experiences and so forth. But at least I got an open mind to it. You know, there was a passage, and I can't, I don't have the book in front of me, but in, in William's book, uh, Richer, Wiser, Happier, there was a passage that basically had to do with human, uh, you take an intelligent human being. We seek complexity even when there is no complexity. That was basically the gist of that particular passage. And the more I look around and the more I see the things we're focusing our energy on and our attention on, the more I believe that, that we're ignoring things that are in plain sight in favor of focusing on things that really are not very impactful because they're more difficult. And we seek challenge, I guess. I I don't know how else to put it. My mom was a very intelligent woman, but she was intelligent in the way of the world. She was not educated. I don't think she ever finished the third grade, but she grew up in a Jewish family in poor Poland, and they had kind of a country store. So the family made its business. Everybody worked in the store, sold their merchandise, and the father was a very religious man, very honest man. And the mother was kind of a promoter and a salesperson. She's the one that made the, the store go. And her mother was an incredible saleswoman. And she grew up 
as a little girl under her tutorship to help sell merchandise in the store and wait on customers. So from the time she was about seven or eight until she left the family from Poland to Germany, she worked in the country store and learned how to deal with people and read people and, you know, learned a lot of things. But it was all through experience and, you know, that type of thing. So when she went to Auschwitz, she sat around and she was a great businesswoman, by the way. She made my dad. My dad had a very successful business before the war, and it was all due to my mom. He was a great tailor and a great lady coat and suit designer, but he was very artistic, very intelligent, very precise, didn't know how to deal with people. He couldn't sell his way out of a paper bag. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. Because everything had to be perfect. And my mom had all this business experience of dealing with people, and she knew how to size people up and all that. So my dad would have the girls sew a dress design, and he would walk by, and if he saw a little flaw in the dress, he got so upset that he would rip the dress out of the sewing machine, throw it in a paper bag, and tell the girl, you start over and remember, this dress has my name on it, and I will not allow my name to be associated with this kind of workmanship. <laughs> that was the kind of guy he was. Right. So my mom knew enough about how to handle him. She told the girls, look. My husband is an extreme fanatic. He's not rational, but that's the way he is. And that's what makes him a great designer. So when he tells you and he chews you out and he rips the dress out of the machine, don't throw it in the trash. You put it in this box. And at the end of the week, I'll come and pick him up. And she took it and had it finished by another place. And she would sell it under a different <laughs> name. That's and, incredible. Yeah. And so she said that they were such nice dresses that she decided to set up a showroom. <laughs> and she had, she was amazing. She had a, a big thing built with a red, bright red velvet curtain with gold, gold things to pull it open. And she would have her regular store and people come in and look for a dress and if she ever found somebody who couldn't find what they liked, she said, you know what? I think I know the kind of person you are. You are the kind of person that doesn't want to wear what everybody else does. You want something special. <laughs> so she says, come with me. And she would great fanfare. She pulled this golden chain down and the curtain would open up. And here were all these second dresses that were replenished under a different name. And She's she good. That, She's really good, Arnold. Yeah. She said they people loved it, and she got referrals. They come up to her and say, I want to look at the dresses behind the, behind the red curtain. <laughs> and she said it would just work beautiful. You know, my dad was happy, and she was happy, and nobody knew the difference. She says that's the way you got to work it in the world. You can't change people. You got to work around them. So anyway, when she got to concentration camp, she told her friends, you know what? We have to figure out a way to get food because it shows you how smart she was. She went around asking people, how long have you been there? And they were all skin and bones, nine months, 10 months, 12 months. 
She says, I rarely found anybody that was there more than a year. So I knew with the food they gave us and with the work they made us do, the most you could live is a year, maybe six months. So she got together with her friends and she says, we got to figure out a way to make ends to where we can get food and medicine or we're never going to survive. And they said, Manya, how are you going to get food and medicine? We're in Auschwitz now. Look at the guards. They got everything tied up. She said, look, they're human beings. Mm -hmm. She says, no, they're Nazis. She says, even Nazis are human beings. And they would be motivated for the same thing that you and I are. So we got to figure out something that we can create that they are going to want. And so they said, well, what the hell is that? I mean, they're, you know, they got everything. She says that the Nazi leaders have everything, but the guards are a bunch of poor schnooks. Mm -hmm. And if we got them something that was valuable, they would do things for us. So they said, so they thought my mom was crazy. So when you get to Auschwitz, the first thing they do is they take the gold out of your teeth, they take the watches, they take the rings, and they put them up in piles. And then they have the prisoners sort them out, the women's watches, the men's watches, the wedding rings, the diamond rings. And they stood there with submachine guns looking over your shoulders, so it isn't like you could just take one, right? Right. And they told you if they caught you, you'd go right into the gas chamber. So my mom went up to the girls working there and she said, you know, if you could pilferage just a few diamonds, we could create a business in here and buy off the guards. And they said, Manya, you're out of your mind. They're standing there with machine guns or watching you like a hawk. She says, look, it's no bigger than your thumbnail. You know, I mean. You, you should be able to lift it. And they said, well, we're not going to take the chance because you're going to the gas chamber. See? So she said, here's her pitch. Don't you think you're going to die within six months to a year? Look at the people here. This is the way you're going to end up. So if you don't take a chance, you're going to die anyway. Why not take a chance? Because you could do it. That's what business is all about. Thinking through risk. Yeah. So she finally got one girl to do it. She went up, she went and studied the guards. And what she did is she looked for a guy that didn't shine his shoes, that was older, that had a pot belly, that looked like his uniform was a little disheveled. It just looked like he wasn't too excited about what he was doing. Yeah, not so proud. Yeah. And... She also looked for a guy that had a little humanity. So when the other guards went around and he let somebody, you know, let them sit down for a while or give them a break. Uh So she said she studied all the guards for three weeks and she finally picked out two that she would bank on. So she went up to one of them and said, you know, I saw you being really nice to that person. And I appreciate that as a prisoner. And I want to do something for you. Uh, let me ask you something. Do you have a wife or a girlfriend? The guy said, well, I have a wife. He says, does she like diamonds? <laughs> he said, well, Manya, what woman doesn't like diamonds? <laughs> he says, I get you one. The next day she comes with a diamond. She doesn't ask for anything in return. She gives it to him. Uh-huh. He goes, the next day he was all smiles. He says, Manya. My wife was so excited about this diamond. I'm going to make it into a ring for her. 
that she is just as happy as can be. I really appreciate this. What can I do for you? She says, well, the girl that gave me the diamond, I have to give her something for it. So I would like some food and medicine or anything you can get, we would appreciate. So he came back, got him a bunch of food and medicine. She said two days later, another guard came up. She's, he says, I'm a friend of so-and-so. He told me that you could get me diamonds. She said, sure. So she set up a whole network where they were bringing in food and she got garlic. I don't know whether you know the value of garlic, but garlic has 70 medicinal properties. And in East Europe, they use it as penicillin. The Russian army wouldn't use penicillin. They use garlic. So garlic was like a currency. It's like having a cigarette. Right. And I just found this out five years ago. The woman that is still alive, we celebrated her 100th birthday recently. And she told me she was real close to my mom. They lived in the same barracks. She says, your mom was the principal maker of garlic in all of Auschwitz. You wanted to get garlic, you had to go through Manya. <laughs> she was the money maker, uh, the market maker of garlic in Auschwitz. Yeah. That's incredible. And she said, I became her secretary, and she would have me watch the garlic while she went around the camp doing business with people. <laughs> she would work on special requests. Like if you needed something special, you went to Manya and she, through her network of guards, was able to get you anything you needed. So interesting. Well, here's a real story. The men and the women were separated. So my dad was sitting there coming out of a hard day's work one day. And he was sitting there with his buddy and a guard kept looking at him. And he said, when a guard kept looking at you, it was always bad news. So he's told his friend, don't look up now, but this guard keeps looking at us. And the guy says, oh, no. <laughs> so finally, the guard, guard starts to walk towards him. My dad looks up and he says, is your name Hugo? My dad says, yeah. He says, well, I have a present from your wife. And my dad says, my wife? He says, yeah, isn't Manya your wife? He says, yeah. He says, well, I have some food from her. She sent it to me to deliver to you. And my dad thought it was a cruel joke. You know, sometimes they play joke on you, you know. And the guy pulls up his briefcase and he hands him a bag. And my dad says he didn't know whether there was a grenade in it or <laughs> whether there was food, you know. So he opens it up and he sees it's food. And the, the guy says, by the way, I need to know your Hebrew name. What is your Hebrew name? And my dad says, Chaim. And so my dad says, do you mind if I ask you a question? He says, no. He says, why do you need my Hebrew name? He says, oh, Manya does not pay us unless we have proof of delivery. <laughs> <laughs> so she wouldn't pay the guy unless he proved that he talked to my dad and gave him the food. And so my dad said, he told his friend, there's only one woman in the world that could get away with this. And that's my wife, Manya. Because <laughs> he knew all the deals that she pulled in business, you know? Yeah. So she was strictly an operator on her subconscious. 
she relied just on her feelings. She had no education. She had no way of analyzing anything. She always got the gut feeling because she relied on her gut. We don't rely on our gut. So we use our brains to figure things out. But if we relied on our gut feeling, we would be much more successful because it's through the subconscious. I'll give you an example. If I never, if I met you once and I said, okay, that's James Vermillion, your image would go into my subconscious mind. And every time I saw you in one thirty-sixth of a second, my subconscious would scan every face I've ever seen and say, that's James Vermillion. Mm -hmm. Now, look how accurate that is. How many times have you missed? diagnose somebody you know yeah it's so, got to be a dark room or a long distance yeah. away otherwise you, you you know yeah so that's the way the subconscious works so one day i'm going to holland this is 30 40 years ago and my mom says oh you're going to holland i want you to visit a friend of mine laney harrikenshauer who was a friend of mine in auschwitz and I said, oh, yeah, I'd like to meet her, and I'd be happy to go see her. So I went to Holland. I called Lainey Hansen. I said, Lainey, uh, my name is Arnold Vandenberg. I'm Anya Vandenberg's son, and I understand you two were together. Before he can finish, she says, oh, my God, man, your son, you've got to come over for dinner. When could you come? And she was just like I was some celebrity. <laughs> And I said, well, I can come over any time when you're well, tomorrow night. Okay. So I went over for dinner. We sit down. She looks at me and she says, your eyes are just like your mother's. And I thought, oh, well, thank you. She says, you know what that means? I said, no. She says, I've never seen anybody's eyes like her. They're special. They tell me there's something different about her. I said, oh. I didn't know that. Thank you. <laughs> he said, uh, did your mother ever tell you the story of how she saved my life? And I said, no, you, she saved your life. She says, you've got to be kidding. You know, she never told you. I said, no. And she says, that sounds just like her. She did the miraculous and she never thought it was a big deal. She expected it to happen. That was her. Mm -hmm. So I said, what do you mean? She says, well, I was dying from typhus. I was in a room separated from the rest of Auschwitz because they separated people who had typhus because they could infect the, the camp. So they just throw you into a separate cabin and you let you die there. They don't have to shoot you or gas you. Right. So they had a guard in front there so that the people wouldn't go visit each other because then they'd spread the typhus. So one day she said she, was in a high fever and she was in delirium. She thought she heard my mom's voice. But then she, later on, she realized it couldn't be. It must have just been the high fever. All of a sudden, my mom comes walking in with a big grin, with a, a bathroom robe and some food. <laughs> she says, Manya, what are you doing in here? If they catch you, they'll kill you. She says, ah, don't worry about it. So she says, I thought I heard you. Were you? Was that you out there talking to the guard? And she says, yeah. She says, well, what happened? He says, well, I walked up to the cabin and he pulled out his, he held his rifle and said, if you go one step further, I'm going to shoot you. And she said to him, 
uh, can I ask you a question? He said, yeah. If you had somebody that was your relative dying in there, would you not want to go see them? And he said, sure, I would. But my orders are not to let anybody in. And if you go in, I have to shoot you. She said she looked into his eyes and she knew that he wouldn't. So she said to him, you know, I'm in line in the gas chamber. I'm going to be in there in about three weeks because they were when they got ready to gas you, they put you in the barracks and then they keep moving the barracks closer and closer until you get to the gas chamber. So she figured she was about three weeks away. She says, I'm either going to die in the gas chamber or you're going to shoot me. But my girlfriend is dying in there and I'm going to go see her. And then she just took off and walked and he didn't shoot her. Wow. So when Lainey told me that story, I couldn't wait to get home and ask my mom, how could be she be so sure that he wouldn't shoot her? So I said, Lainey told me the story how you saved your life. She says, yeah, not a big deal. And she said, I said, Ma, how did you know this guy wouldn't shoot you? She says, I looked into his eyes and I just felt in my gut that he wasn't going to shoot me. He wasn't that kind of a guy. He didn't want to. So I told him I'm going in because I knew he wouldn't shoot me. And she says, I told Lainey, I'll be back to see you tomorrow. She said, Manya, please don't come back. They're going to shoot you. And she said, the second day, she came to visit her three times. <laughs> and she said, the second day, what did the guard do? She said, when he saw me, he walked the other way. She says, I think he's afraid of me. <laughs> and she said, so the third time she came, she was really getting weak. And my mom grabbed her and said, Lainey, you're going to make it. And I'm going to make it. And I want you to hang in there because you can give up in your thoughts, but I don't want you to give up because one of these days when we get out, we're going to have a wonderful deal and have a glass of wine and celebrate us getting Auschwitz. And I want you to put that in your mind and think about nothing else. So if we don't see each other, we'll see each other at the dinner table. Well, I have a picture of them in France celebrating holding a glass of wine. Unbelievable. And, you know, Arnold, I, I've got to say this. I think what I love most about the parts of your story and your family story that I've heard, it is the absolute worst, most egregious parts of human nature. And it's also the most fascinating, heroic, resilient parts of the human spirit, all in one story in which, in the end, good wins. And to me, that's just, it's such an incredible story. And, it, and it's just such a good example for people who are experiencing challenges and know they, they might not be, you know, the same type of difficulties, but it might be the same types of, of problems about them, themselves. You know, it might be a, a poor self-image, which you had growing up and you had to get over that and, and find ways uh, to, to, to improve that and overcome that. You know, James, you know what's the real secret? It's all in the New Testament, what Jesus taught. Seek and you shall find, knock and it'll be open. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it's all about truth. It's all about hanging in there. It's all, What was the simple thing that Christ taught? Every time he healed somebody, he says, you are healed because of your faith. 
if you repeat something often enough, even if it is the biggest lie, you will get to believing it. Did you know that? I've seen that. <laughs> I've experienced it and I've seen it with other people. Absolutely. Well, you, you've heard the saying, he believes his own bullshit. Exactly. I've seen it. And that is true. Yes. That is, you know, the most dangerous liar is the perpetual liar because they believe their own belief. And if somebody stands in front of you and really believes it, it really is powerful. It is. Absolutely. It absolutely and is. Can, and you know who are the masters is the politicians. I was just about to point that out. They do it their whole life. Yeah. And they get to be so convincing that it mesmerizes people. Yeah. You know what I believe? That an honest person cannot get conned. Mm. You know why? My wife is probably, I'm not just saying it because it's my wife, although I probably am, but nevertheless, <laughs> she is extremely honest. There's nothing more important to her than truth. And she is like radar. Many times we go out with people and she said, she's very quiet. So she said, did you pick up on what that person said or what they said? You know, sometimes a, a person like a Freudian slip or something, they yes. say that when it gives them away, uh -huh. she says, did you pick up on that? I said, no, I didn't. Really. Are you sure? They said, oh yeah. I said, Jesus, I didn't catch that. She said, you know why? I said, no. She says, you were doing all the talking. <laughs> <laughs> I'm guilty of that sometimes myself. Well, so she said, I just listen. And when you listen and you watch people, you watch the nonverbal communication. She is like radar. Nobody has ever got by her. Right. But they get by me. <laughs> Many times she says, your favorite line is, well, how did you like, oh, they were such nice people. Such <laughs> people. I just loved them. And she just sits there and smiles. She says, well, you're going to find out. Yeah, they, they were full of shit. She knew it and you didn't. <laughs> there is no way that anybody can get by her. It's never happened in 50 years of marriage. Hey, let, me, let me ask you this, Arnold. There are many, many advantages to the world we're living in today with with the internet and, you know, things like this, like me having the opportunity to talk and learn from you. I could not have had that probably 20 years ago, 30 years ago, just wouldn't have happened. There are also a lot of opportunities to come across bullshit. And I think it's really easy for people to not seek the truth and just believe whatever is presented directly in front of them. Is, is that a growing problem? I, I'm generally like an optimist and think things are getting better and we're just facing different challenges, not worse ones. How do you feel about that as someone who's lived through various eras of information and, and technology? You know, if you see the world the way it really is, rather than the way the TV promotes it and the media and all that, and you look at the true situation in the world, the world's never been better off. I mean, think about the number of people that are in poverty today compared to 50 years ago. Or think about the people who are living in democracies and freedom as opposed to 25 or 50 years ago. Mm -hmm. And look at the fact that even a guy like me without any education can make a great living and become financially independent. 
and yeah. live in a beautiful home and and have his own business. I mean, that just is that's not possible most of the places in the world. And so I think the world is a better place, but people get hung up on their relative experiences and they get brainwashed. When you look at the TV, you look at the news, almost every station says the exact same things about what happened. It's like they're all choreographed by one person, you know, so they get brainwashed. Sure. The more honest a person is, the better his life is, irrespective of where you are. Now, let me give you an example of that. Dostoevsky wrote about the fact that the people who were honest and had high character seemed to do the best in a concentration, in the Gulag. The guy that wrote the Gulag Archipelago, uh, Dost Solzhenitsyn, wrote that he actually experienced bliss in the concentration camps by a certain state of mind. And so you look at the Buddhist, they, you know, they have a bowl of rice during lunch. They spend their life praying and doing all these things. You and I would look at that life and say, Jesus, you know, you might as well be in a concentration camp. They have to work hard. You know, who yeah. wants a life like that? And they have a life of bliss just in their mind. Right. So we always look for external things to prove that we're happy. But happiness is not by outside things. Happiness is the way you feel, the way you believe, the way you see things. Mm. So the more you develop your inner life, the less you need on the outside. I could be very happy, not that I want to be, but I could be very happy in a two-room home which is the bedroom and a living room and maybe a, a, a study and live in a hotel, you know, just do my thing. I wouldn't need any of the other things and just have my books at this stage in my life. I could be very happy with that. I wouldn't need anything else. Mm -hmm. My wife may not like living that <laughs> way. I was about to ask that. <laughs> yeah. That's why I don't live that way. But if, if she was happy that way, I would be. When I travel, I get in, I set up my, you know, uh, hotel room and everything. I'm perfectly content there. I have a couple of good books. I have my phone where I can listen to some good music. Now, 30 years ago, if somebody told me I would have ended up like that. I would have told them they're crazy, you know. So you change as you come to evaluate the inner world. And uh, it doesn't take a lot to be happy. Well, I think that's why these conversations are so valuable to me, you know, Arnold, and, I, and I, why I appreciate you talking to me so much. Because, you know, here I am, I'm 35 years old. I've got a less than two-year-old daughter at home and a wife that I, you know, have known and have been dating since we were, you know, 14, 15 years old. And I, I really feel like just over the last year or two, I've really started to think about things more clearly and not get caught up in so many of the kind of material traps or the keeping up with the Joneses kind of mentality. The way you change the world is by changing yourself. Uh, one of my favorite authors, and I'm going to send you his book, said the way, you, the way to reform the world is to reform yourself. Mm-hmm. You don't do it by reforming other people. You reform yourself. And when you reform yourself, 
you have the ability to reform other people. I love that. See that? We don't have to get in the corner and preach. We just have to give people our views. And some people will accept them and some people will think you're nuts. And that's okay. That's their choice. Yeah. My wife always says, keep getting better, keep doing better and love your neighbor. <laughs> she said, if you do that, right. if you do that, all, all is good. Preach. I'm excited that you have a two-year-old girl because you have a chance with what you learn from the subconscious mind to give her a glorious future because she is in the most impressionable time in her life. You have until about now till she's eight years old. And if you instill these principles in her, she's going to be like my mom. She, you know, my mom lived to be 98 or 90. I think it was almost 99 years. And the only reason she died is she didn't want to live anymore. Right. And, she, and I went to visit her one time. I said, what do you do, mom? She says, I'm waiting to die. And she, mm. I said, what do you mean? You're still healthy and everything. She said, Arnold, I've done everything I wanted in my life. I'm bored to tears with it all. The people in here are very boring to me. <laughs> and everybody's busy with their life. I've done everything I've ever wanted to do. I've had good health up until right now. But I'm ready to go. I'm ready to move on. And it's not because I'm unhappy. It's just I want to do other things. Mm. And so she died. And, you know, she was healthy up until the day she died. I was in the room when she died. And she was just perfectly happy to go. Right, right. <laughs> and my son came rushing over and says, geez, I heard your mom died. I came over and I said, well, what'd you rush over for? And he says, well, dad, your mom died. That's a big thing. I said, she was very happy to go. Right. She, she didn't feel bad. She wanted to go. That's hard for us to to accept but but yeah. yeah what do i want to live more for what, what am i going to do so anyway but uh james thank i want to thank you for your time because i know you're busy no i i loved it absolutely loved it it's been eye-opening and, and and lovely and i've enjoyed it well i am very happy to hear that because that's my mission in life if i can convey these thoughts that i paid a great price for it's a great reward to know that it's helping other people. And if that's what it is, uh, you made my day. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Arnold Vandenberg. If you enjoyed this, you can go back to the archives of my previous podcast, Bulls, Bears, and Bourbon, for another discussion with Arnold. If you're enjoying the show, please give it a rating on your podcast listening platform and spread the word to others you think will find it insightful and useful. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.